Hello, and welcome to the Teens for Peace podcast. We are excited you've joined us from wherever you are. Before we get into the content, allow me to introduce myself and a little bit about what I'm setting out to do. My name is Max Heinen. I'm 17 and from the Chicago area, and I have big dreams to make the world a more hospitable, loving, and peaceful place. My vision for that starts with teenagers. See, I've spent the last two years exploring the world of teenagers in peacemaking. My project, Teens for Peace in the Middle East, interviews teenagers in Israel and Palestine to understand their experiences and perspectives on the conflict between their two peoples. Through it, I've found some fascinating trends and patterns. Above all, I discovered that teenagers fit a unique age group in which stereotypes are present, but not yet hardened and unchangeable. So I've made it my mission to share the stories of teenagers in conflicts worldwide, to help alter untrue stereotypes about the other before they become set in stone. By building a platform of connected teenagers in Israel and Palestine, I hope to contribute towards a more peaceful world where peace starts in youth. This podcast mini-series will discuss in depth each of the questions I've asked over 30 Israeli and Palestinian teens to examine how different experiences have impacted their views on the conflict between their peoples. The hope is that by the end of this mini-series, both you and I will have a better idea of how we can promote young people in peacebuilding and understand why young people play such a crucial part, not just in conflict, but in bringing about change in multiple contexts. This is the Teens for Peace podcast. Today, for our first episode, let's dive into the very first question. In every interview, after I ask about basic information, I found it most evoking to ask about how one was introduced to the monumental idea that someone is growing up in a land that has been fought over for a century, for millennia. How young can one internalize that concept? Is it even possible as a child? The phrasing, although it varies by conversation, runs along the lines of, how did you learn about the conflict? Was it in school or by experience? And if it was an experience, can you tell us about that? More, 18-year-old Israeli, frames it as a simple fact of life. The fact that he has to go to the army, he says, is always looming over him and his friends. This specifically has connected him to the conflict at all times. At ages 11 and 12, he was already thinking forward to military service. Um, I think it's a mix of things. I think for most people, it is because for once, like from a very young age uh, in Israel or Palestine, you are very aware of this topic. Even if you don't, you're, not, you're not calling it the conflict, you're very aware of you know, the uh, military situation, the fact that you, as a Jewish uh, uh, teen, you have to go to the army. Um, uh, and that's like... You know, fact alone is very prevalent in my life and in the life of my friends um, in various ways, like from a very young age. So you're aware of things uh, that are connected to the conflict all the time, like mm. from not only from the news, from the daily life, from the people you know, from the people that have been through the army or that are going to the army or that are now in the army. Um, so that's one thing. But I think the like... I started to learn more about the topic when I was probably about, I don't know, 11, 12. Eli, 20, says... Well, uh, when you live in Israel, the conflict is, uh, is always ar- around you. Okay. Uh, you, learn it, you, you learn about it in school, and you also see it uh, wherever you go. Um, for example, uh, you, you have uh, 
some cities, uh, both Arabs and Jews live together. And uh, sometimes, like, like in Jerusalem, sometimes uh, it's a bit tense. Uh, but uh, other times, uh, you know, where you, we, we make it work. Mm-hmm. So can you remember, like, your first experience with the conflict or, um, you know, when, when you had some sort of experience that really made you realize the gravity of, of what you're living through? Uh, yeah, uh, my first experience uh, from the conflict was uh, uh, the the rockets attacked from uh, uh, Gaza towards Israel uh, from the Hamas. Uh, I remember when I was uh, really young, uh, spent time in the in a bomb shelter. Uh, this was the, the, like the first time I was aware. Like, Countless Israeli teens have learned and are learning by experience, and violence was Ilay's curriculum. In the real world of the conflict, he tells me, the most pressing thing is the looming future of compulsory military service, paired with the constant threat of violence breaking out, two fears that reinforce each other. Instead of learning about the historical background of what's going on and why, he learned to think about the conflict in the context of his family, his friends, and eventually, him being sent into battle because of provocation of the other. We've now heard from two teens that first experienced the conflict around them through understanding a societally accepted view that life in Israel just involves violence. They've come to an understanding over time that they are helpless to make change and that they are forced to sit and wait until they're drafted into the army. But what about those for which a specific traumatic event shapes their view of the conflict? Liran, an 18-year-old Israeli living in a primarily Israeli town in the West Bank, recounts how, even throughout his childhood while participating in Model UN, debating international conflicts, including his own countries, he never really understood the magnitude of importance the conflict had. He says his private school tried to give both sides of the conflict but most of the time, to get unbiased information, he had to do research on his own. Even then, he hadn't fully internalized it until... To the point, so we had enough. We wanted a vacation. So we went down to the southernmost city. It's called Leilat. Everyone knows what it is. It's a lovely, you know, beachside right. city. And the big thing with Leilat is rockets don't reach Leilat. Right, it's too far. They never, it's too far. They don't have a... They never had a rocket... They never had rocket fire from Gaza. It's too far. Their their missiles simply don't reach. So everyone's like, "Yeah, that's a completely different world, man. It's it's amazing." So we went to Elat. We were having the time of our lives. No sirens at all until three, like two or three a.m. in the in the night. We're in a hotel, and we just hear, we hear like the sirens starting, and then literally five seconds later, we just hear the loudest sound of our lives, and we hear. The glass of the hotel window just shatters. And we're like, what is going on? And we look outside and there everything's just on. We look outside the balcony and ev- the cars are just on fire. There's a massive hole in the ground. You can't see every- anything. There. Everything's on fire and everyone's confused because no one knows what's going on. Wow. Which, and that's supposed to be a different place. 
And if a rocket were to reach that, you'd have like four or five minutes before right. you need to get in there. Sure, it would never right. be that quick. Only like a day later, when the news came out, apparently they fired rockets from Sinai. This experienced Kazli Ran and his family fear of living in their own country, and they left immediately. Despite all the active efforts he had made to educate himself, he said, he found himself in a position of truly understanding the conflict only when his life was in danger, and that even when he'd done all he could to prepare himself for that moment, his brain was overridden by this specific memory. Dissociating the entirety of the Palestinian people from that moment of extreme danger became a task for him, an incredible burden most teenagers would collapse under. Idan, 16-year-old Israeli-American, says the gravity of the conflict around him caused a revelation in 2014 when he was trapped in a shelter all day, hiding from violence, as his family spent the summer in Israel. first time I completely realized what was going on was probably during the summer of 2014 when my family flew to Israel uh, for the summer. And I saw what was happening in, in uh, the reactions of what was happening in New York. There were protests by both sides every day in Times Square and in Israel living under a reality of, of being in a shelter almost all day. And it was really the first time I was, you know, showcased and experienced everything that is being talked about. He had heard bits and pieces of the cycles of escalated violence that had happened over the past few decades, but his first real experience with his country's conflict was literally fearing for his life at the age of eight. Though he himself learned about the conflict largely through peril, Idan has gathered broad knowledge on how the process occurs for others. In fact, he's created a very specific mindset towards the way that schooling works in Israel, which we'll talk about in just a few minutes. Ahmad, Palestinian, lives in Hebron in the West Bank, where the Palestinian and Israeli communities are largely separated. Ahmad says he rarely interacts with Israelis, that his closest and most frequent contact with Israelis is with guards at checkpoints. There's a site for the Palestinians and uh, a site for the Israelis. So there's, it's separated? Yeah. Do you ever interact with the Israelis? Not often, like, I interact with soldiers at the checkpoints, um, and sometimes in my city, but not, not citizens. These soldiers have been a consistent part of his life since he was four or five, and he's still confused why they are there. But over time, he's become immune. And how he was introduced to the conflict, in a way no child should be, became commonplace. What is it like having soldiers near you at all times? It's, it's like, it doesn't feel so good because, but like, I can't really talk about, about it because like, you're used to it. Like, I've been seeing them since I was like four or five. So, so it's just part I of can't really, yeah. What are they, what are they there for? Protection, but like, why are they there? It's because, um, like they, they want to, um, Oppress us, you know. 
One of his first experiences with the gravity of the situation and the tension between Israelis and Palestinians, not just a purely administrative purpose of the soldiers, was when his cousin had forgotten his ID on the way to school. The soldiers had taken his cousin to a checkpoint, blindfolded, and held him for three hours without notifying his family. Um, my cousin once um, wanted to go to school. It was his finals, and um, he forgot his ID. He lives in, um, like, he lives in Hebron. So um, he forgot to get his ID, and then, like, a soldier called for him. He wanted to talk with him and um, ask him for his ID, and he didn't have it. He forgot it. So, like, they um, they covered his eyes and and took him to the to the point, like. This was his first true experience with detention in his city. As a child, he saw these soldiers as making his life harder, so he would want to leave, and the Israelis could enjoy the land alone. And that was an idea that was reinforced by the voices of those around him. Not all trauma is the same. Aliyah, 15-year-old Israeli from Petah Tikva, in the center of the land, learned a bit about the hostility of the world around her in an unusual fashion. Just, um, I started to play in a game that's called PUBG. Okay, so um, I just put my, my, my country flag and people just shout at me or um, call me killer and things like that, so. And so do you, does that make you feel like upset or even like ashamed of having to put that? She had started to play an online video game, Player Unknown Battlegrounds, or PUBG, and had used the Israeli flag for her icon. Not long after, other players shouted at her and called her killer. Without expressing any political views, she had become the target of stereotypes she hadn't even known existed. It made her feel ashamed of who she was before she even figured out where she stood and what she believed in. This is the root of the problem. Such a hostile environment promotes the continuation of this cycle of hatred. Trauma certainly plays a role in shaping the young mind, but specific experiences over time, in school and in society, or the lack of such experiences, can be just as important. Serena, a Palestinian in East Jerusalem, illustrates the differences in the school system where she lives. It's it's more like we did like we always like we always like in history classes we always like have this subject, and it's called like um this the Israeli movement, and it's just like the Zionism movement, not Israeli because we don't use the word Israel in our history books because we don't wow. admit that. The 
quote, Zionist movement has been a topic in her history studies since she was young. And she has noticed that none of her notebooks or materials ever use the word Israel or Israeli to avoid legitimization. It has been framed from the very start of her studies as an occupation. The stories by family and friends, yes, maybe even with some validity, but also through a textbook, she was taught, say that Zionists completely ignore the people already in the land and their hospitality and are therefore cold and heartless. There is no mention of any peace agreements, no mention of any peace-building programs. And worst of all, this curriculum villainizes associating with the other in any way, meaning it's unlikely Serena will go against the norms given to her and go out and interact with others to find out that the situation may not be fully explained in a textbook. On the school side of exposition to the conflict, Idan provides insight into the difference of different schools' approaches. Teachers try because you know they have to. They're like they're not. They can't speak their own mind. They're they're following their cur curriculum. But it's usually when it happens, it's it's a it's a hot and debated topic. And for that reason, the students will will not really let the, the teacher teach. Usually, they'll, they'll like ask questions. Those who don't know, and. Uh, They'll say their own mind, but it's not covered as much as it should be, if that's what you're asking. Public schools, he says, are bound to the Ministry of Education's curriculum, a curriculum that essentially ignores the conflict, even in history. When it is brought up, he says, it is done so, so chaotically and without any structure, so much that the kids don't let the teacher teach and are adamant about the truth of their own opinions. Largely, this is because it has been ignored for so long that those who do have their opinions are the only source of information for many kids who haven't decided where they stand. Instead of accepting that they, and maybe their families, are wrong about things, they try to go out and convince their peers of the evilness of that other side, instead of maybe accepting that that's not the full picture. This is how ingrained hatred is. It's generational, and it supersedes any attempt at an education. The outcome of all this? Less politically interested peers are skewed heavily by the beliefs of classmates informing their own opinions, allowing the spreading of stereotypes and a multiplier effect of hatred. And that's how they're introduced to the conflict for the very first time. Marcel, an 18-year-old Arab, Israeli-Palestinian, lives in Israel but comes from a Palestinian background. Okay, so I, I, I am... I identify myself as myself as an Arab Israeli Palestinian. That means that I'm I, uh, as an Arab. I live in Israel, but I come from a Palestinian background. Um, the way the way may, many people kind of view that identity is is, is different from one another. If, if we're talking about the political kind of spectrum of Israel, you have people who are right wing and left wing, like in America. People who are more left-wing, genuine, gen, like 
mo mostly don't have problems with people like me, but people who are right wing and very cynical and extreme people will kind of interact with me differently based on what kind of uh, based on what they know about me. Um, when I was younger, there was always this kind of weird feeling when when we went to whether it my, my whether if if I went to my father where he worked or if I went out with my mother to go get dinner or lunch from many different places outside of my town in the Jewish areas there was this always like this kind of aura when we start speaking Arabic people started looking at us weirdly For him, he sees the situation as very language-based. If he doesn't speak Hebrew as well as other Arabs, he's prone to more racism. Luckily, he points out, his father was adamant that his children learn new languages, specifically Hebrew. This allowed him to skirt some of the racism he would feel otherwise, simply because of who he is. Similarly to Ahmad, Shad, 16-year-old Palestinian, lives in a purely Arab town in central Israel. She has not had the opportunity to interact with many Israelis in her childhood. Generally speaking, um, I wouldn't be exposed to uh, Jewish, other Jewish uh, teens because of uh, like living in a purely Arab town and because of like um, we don't really interact going to other Jewish uh, towns. But personally speaking, I do have uh, a lot of uh, Jewish best friends that I met in a certain program and I got to bond with them and make friendships. She has not had the opportunity to interact with many Israelis in her childhood. Never having been exposed to any other viewpoints, it's an absence of diversity, not a surplus of violence, that taught her. Separated, is just the way things are, someone like Shad might reason. And there must be a reason for that. Who am I to change things? What does this all tell us about how we should approach peace building? Should we be promoting it earlier, before it's too late? Before people find out about the conflict by being bullied online? Before kids see missiles out their window? Is this even possible? To me, it means a complete rethinking of how we approach peace building. A rethinking of school curriculum, media language, and social discourse to make it clear, from youth, that a missile doesn't represent the thoughts of millions. It means making connections between youth to prove this at a young age. It means, in short, making the truth clear before the stereotypes and hatred cloud that truth to a point of no return. Today, I urge us, let's start conversations. I urge children and youth, just talk. Talk to someone who doesn't look like you. If you're Israeli, Palestinian, American, or of any other identity, talking is the most proven way time and time again, including in professional research that we'll discuss later in this series, to realize that you might not be all that different. In fact, you might have more similarities to someone you once thought was evil or a killer than you could imagine. One of the most profound lyrics of all time, in my humble opinion, 
embodies this in the context of racial divisions in America, though it applies to Israel and Palestine and anywhere else where people are hurting. In Mortal Man, off of his album To Pimp a Butterfly, an opus exploring division and cyclical hatred, Kendrick Lamar says, Forgetting all the pain and hurt we caused each other in these streets. If I respect you, we unify and stop the enemy from killing us. That will about wrap it up for our first episode, but if you enjoyed, stay tuned for more and check out our website at teenspeace.org. Next time, we'll be diving more into how the school systems work and the impact they have in shaping minds. Again, I'm Max Hyman for the Teens for Peace podcast.